29 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I will be your host today. Today's episode is titled Institutionally Ignorant and it's my reaction to the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities report that was published last week, Wednesday, the 31st of March in Britain. So if you're listening and you have no idea what that was, maybe have a read of some articles or maybe not. This might be the place where you find out for the first time what that report said what it meant um, and what I think it means for race relations in this country and kind of where they're going on a trajectory at the moment. And so I've read the report. I've not read every single word of it, but I've read the majority of it. And as I read it, I coded um, the text. And so, you know, using some of my uh, research skills from from past qualifications I categorised different parts of text into like a sliding scale. And so the first like point on my sliding scale was positive sentiment. So anything that I kind of agreed with, I thought was quite positive, um, helpful in the discussion. Um, So that was kind of the top one. The next one down was what does this even mean? Because I was confused or confused in a a quite... uh, you know, I disagree with this slightly, but, you know, there is still confusion there. My next one was make it make sense. <laughs> my fourth code was what in the world? Um, and my fifth one was added quite, you know, towards the uh, recommendations part of the report that I read. And it was called, and quite provocative, maybe I should change the title of it, What Should the Blacks Do? And I had that as a title because, if I'm very honest, reading this as a black person, it was very much what should you be doing? What should the blacks do? What should the blacks do to make their situation in Britain more livable, more enjoyable, more successful? What should you do about this country that has its prejudice and its racism? What should you do to alleviate that for yourself? What should you do to make, you know, non-black people think better of you so you can have a more successful time in this country. That is the tone of the report, personally, that I felt. And I think that's my biggest problem with this report, the tone. The way it's written, the construction of sentences, and I, you know, I studied English literature. I am very big on words and how they're used because words have power and words have meaning um, beyond, you know, what is exactly written on paper. And I think some of the sentences that were constructed by these authors, and I'm not going to go into the authors, I'm not going to bash people because, first of all, that's a straw man argument. Um, You know, we're not going to look at these individuals uh, and pick apart their lives because it's not relevant because they are, for me anyway, um, a mouthpiece for an organisation that is not necessarily them but above them. So the point of kind of bashing them or pulling up their credentials or you know doing any of that I think is quite redundant um so we won't be doing that but we will be looking at the tone of this report and I have a quote because this is where it really hit me and I shared it on Instagram if you follow on Instagram because I was shocked horrified that this would even make it into a government report and we'll get onto the fact that this is a government report this is not an independent inquiry this is not an independent commission this is a government commission commissioned by the conservative government that we have in power today so let that sit with you because there's clearly going to be biases so to really be shocked by this report is quite i don't know for me in this britain knowing the history of this country 
shock is never what I feel when things like this come out personally. So, to give an example of this tone I speak of that I was not a big fan of, and also to just precursor, I know that this report spoke about a few different institutions in Britain. I won't be focusing on all of them because, if I'm very honest, I don't really know much about healthcare. Obviously, I know the headline statistics um, about women, black women dying um, at disproportionate rates in childbirth and things like that. And, you know, the way that medical students are trained to understand skin diseases and skin problems on white skin as the default and not black skin or brown skin, making it very difficult for them to treat black people in the future. Um, and all those kinds of small things, but I don't really know the overarching, you know, big picture when it comes to healthcare. However, I do know more about education, and my research has been about the history of education and the education of black people in this country um, from the Windrush generation, um, and I know a little bit about policing as well. My research has stretched there in the past. So, my area of focus will be education. I might bring in some points about the police, but other things I'm going to leave for the experts um not saying i'm necessarily an expert but um i do believe you should speak on the things that you know um and so that's what i'll be doing and also i am coming at this from the perspective of a historian um not a politician um and whilst obviously i'm aware politically aware of what's happening in the world today um it's not really my favorite thing to think about or talk about so um yeah i just felt like i had to talk about this report because I think it's one of those things that, you know, historians in the future will definitely have to use to think about race in this country um, as we look back at it, you know, in the future. And also, I kind of thought this report is actually the perfect introduction to what I'll be speaking about for the rest of the month. Now, last month was Women's History Month and we looked at fantastic women from around the world um, and their struggles and resistance towards like colonialism and slavery um, and some of the things that they achieved despite the fact that they were black women in a time where, well, I don't know if much has changed, but in a time where, you know, black women were not given the agency, the support, the love um, that they would have deserved or needed to really thrive. And so this month we're thinking about migration and I am blessed to have some speakers coming on this month where we're going to be talking about different migrations of different groups of people now it's really funny because I planned this from I don't know February January um however this report kind of perfectly you know precursors this month because it does speak about the migrations of different groups of people and you know their experiences and also not conflating all of these different groups of um, people who came to this country and come to this country because when we look at the Windrush generation and maybe black people from the Caribbean that came in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it's going to be a different experience to maybe people that came from uh, Africa, West Africa in the early 2000s and the late 90s and that's going to be different to Asians that had to flee from places like Kenya or Uganda in the 60s. And so all of these experiences of all these different people will be different. And by having different guests on this week to talk about different groups of migration, um, I hope to really stress that point to you. Um, we'll obviously be looking at some Windrush Generation stuff because it's my favourite. Um, I have a guest coming to talk about the South Asian community. Um, from this, someone else coming to talk about people from the Seychelles um, and uh, West Africa as well. So a varied month. 
Um, and I just felt like this really did precursor this month quite well, as I've said. So this idea that the tone of this report was very unsettling to me stems from this kind of comparison between black Caribbean people and black African people. Now, as I've mentioned, black Caribbean people in their majority, not entirety, majority, came in the winner's generation. And that was for me and my family, three, I'm the third generation of that migration. So my grandparents came over, parents were born here, I was born here. Um, whereas, say in the case of most West Africans, not all, because a lot of them did come in the 50s, 60s as well, um, and even before that, um, the kind of biggest wave was in the early 2000s and late 90s. And so in that case, it might be that they are first generation um, immigrants, they might be second maybe, um, but it's less likely that they'd be on the third or fourth in the same way that black Caribbean people are. And so when we move down these generations, we become more assimilated into British culture. Um, that's something I've noticed, especially if, you know, our ties back home kind of die or get cut slightly or, you know, they're not as strong, especially now in a pandemic, you can't like go back home or go on holiday back to the country that your family's from. And that's been a whole year of that. And some people really do rely on that to keep those kind of cultural traditions alive. And so, you know, we're dealing with two completely different groups of people. However, in this country, black people are just all people that are of certain darkness. Um, and all of our struggles, all of our stories are lumped together. And this has been a problematic thing, I think, for a very long time. And I do like to separate black people out in this country when I speak about them in terms of migration or in terms of, um, you know, the problems that they're dealing with in this country. OK, so thinking about the tone um, and this kind of idea of pitting different groups of black people against each other, which I have serious issue with, especially when black people are not homogenous. We're not a monolith. We're not all one, especially in this country when you've got people coming from the Caribbean first second third generation you've got people from africa might be first second third generation too there are disparities so to compare us all and say oh you know you're all doing great or you're doing badly um is very problematic but this was where i really took issue so page eight of the report says talking about participation this idea that black people are not participating enough in british society henceforth their problems so we were impressed by the immigrant optimism of some of the new African communities. They were among the new high achievers in our education system. As their Caribbean peers sit in the same classrooms, it is difficult to blame racism in education for the latter's underachievement. So this basically says, black Caribbeans, you're literally in the same room as black African people. They're doing well, so why are you not? And... If you don't understand why that's problematic, then get out of here, find a new podcast. I'm joking. Um, but just to plug my own podcast, even though you're already here listening, go and listen to Education is Subnormal. It was an episode I think I did last summer. Um, I think it's like episode 15, 10 maybe, somewhere in between there. And it's where I talk about the history of the education system um, and how it disproportionately negatively impacted black people as they were shipped off to educationally subnormal schools. And by the black people, I mean black Caribbean people because they were who were in the education system at that time because the big wave of migration from Africa, West Africa, um, Southern African countries, it hadn't happened yet. So 
you know, those people didn't make up the, the majority of the education system when it came to black people. And so why I take such issue with that is, first of all, this is a government report and you're here like, oh, black Caribbean people sort it out. No, I don't like it. I don't like the tone. And I just don't like the lack of historical context. It's just, how can you actually, with your chest, write a government report, commission on race and ethnic disparities, and you don't even acknowledge the historical context of these people in this education system? Now, I cannot obviously, you know, make up claims of why black Caribbean people might be doing so badly in comparison to uh, black African people when it comes to academic attainment. However, I will say that if you're measuring everybody by the same yardstick, you have to kind of understand that not everybody is the same. Our education system and a lot of education systems around the world just look at one measure of um, success, which is the GCSE results. That's where these this data comes from. Um, I think it's maths and English um, and how the percentage of people that get a C. So the percentage of people that pass, I think it's a four now um, in terms of the numbers to pass. And so that is what is being looked at, that data. So it's not looking at the type of school different um, people might go to. So it is not just comparing um, a black Caribbean child and a black African child in a, let's say, I don't know, a comprehensive school in London somewhere. Um not anywhere notable it's looking at all the black caribbean children and all the black african children across a range of schools so private schools grammar schools and comprehensive schools in good and bad areas um and so how can you actually compare these things without looking at class now this report in a very weird way highlights the issue of class however it doesn't highlight it as an intersection with race it highlights it as a separate entity it's like working class people over there middle class people upper class people or black people over there white people over there um without actually looking at the intersections of what is you know what are the barriers for a working class caribbean boy what are the barriers for a middle class um african girl do you know what I mean? And whilst I'm not saying we necessarily need to go through and look at every single intersection for every single type of person in this country, because that would be very tedious and I wouldn't want to be the statistician that has to do that. But you can't just look at, you know, race as the only thing. And you, they might, you might be thinking, well, that's exactly what they're saying. But it's actually not because they don't at any point look at the intersections of these different things um, in enough rigour for my liking. So... That was my kind of primary issue as I got into this report because that was on page eight. So from page eight, I was already, you know, my arms were folded, unfortunately. I still had my category of positives. So it wasn't just the fact that, you know, I was annoyed and I was like, not going to take this in or look at it with an open mind. And I will also say as a disclaimer, I haven't read any articles. I think maybe one or two, but I've skimmed them. Um, Yeah, I haven't really gone into depth any of the analysis I've seen. I've not listen to any like historians or political commentators or you know anybody that has spoken about this report um I've only watched I watched the news on Wednesday and they were literally just detailing the report and so and I did that because I didn't want to be influenced by my echo chamber which is very left-winged 
um, very much understanding of racial disparities and very sympathetic to that. And so I wanted to actually read it and think, you know, let me make up my own mind on this um, and present this to you. And I just still was just, I can't, you just can't like it. It doesn't make any sense to me personally. And I'll talk about the second thing that was very annoying to me. Now, this found itself in the positive sentiment category because when I first read it, I was like, amazing, this is exactly what I've wanted for a very long time. It says, you know, we need to get rid of the category BAME. BAME being black, Asian and minority ethnic. And I was like, hallelujah, amazing, wonderful. BAME is the most ridiculous term I've ever heard in my life. How can you compare the struggle or not struggles of black people or black people in this country compared to all Asian people? compared to minority ethnic, which, what does that even mean? And without looking at class, number one, without looking at gender, disability, sexuality, all of these other things, religion, when we look at Asian people, you know, we don't think about necessarily, and black people actually, um, Islamophobia. Islamophobia is such a huge discriminatory issue in this country. So why would there be any point comparing, I don't know, a black like Christian person um with someone that's asian and muslim because their struggles are completely different so to put it all in one little bubble and say oh yeah all the bames are doing well or all the bames are doing badly it's just so ridiculous to me and during this pandemic where you know people were saying you know oh like the bame population is being disproportionately affected by covid in my head i was like can you be more specific please because you know middle class anybody's that live, you know, in single generational households with a lot of space um, and work in office jobs where they can work from home, they're not on the front line. Doesn't matter if they're BAME, they're fine. Like, do you know what I mean? Um, so I was quite, um, yeah, happy that this report was like, let's get rid of BAME. However, my dreams, my hopes were shattered as I continued to read and every single second the term ethnic minority was used. They've literally said, let's get rid of BAME because it, you know, trivialises the struggles and it, like, makes a big group out of very different groups of people. Let's get rid of that. Tick. Great. However, then they use ethnic minorities throughout the whole report. And then I did a little control find to see how many times they use the term ethnic minority or minorities. And it was 353. So on a 258 page report, 353 times the term ethnic minority slash minorities has been used. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of them are in the references. But you're then just lumping us all together again. How does that make sense? And that found itself in the make it make sense category of my coding. Because you've just like completely contradicted the point that you've made. And don't get me wrong, these are like kind of trivial things in regards to the actual findings of this report, which are the wholly problematic side. But I just didn't understand that. I wanted this report to break down black people, black Caribbean people, black African people of different classes. I wanted it to break down Asian people. I wanted it to not just compare all other people that are not white to white people, which is exactly what this report did, just compared everybody to white people. It was like whatever percentage of whatever they were looking at impacted white people or didn't impact white people. It was like, okay, whiteness is the benchmark. Do these other groups of, of minorities fall below or above? And that's how we're going to figure out if there's institutional racism. Now, 
I should have mentioned this at the start, but my thoughts are just kind of free falling out my mouth. The idea of institutional racism. So the big buzzword, the big headline is that institutional racism does not exist. Well, hey, we did it, guys. It's 2021 and there's no more institutional racism. Amazing. I wonder if anybody actually felt that way. No, didn't think so. But the term institutional racism in the you know definition of this report is not actually explicitly defined, which was quite... Um, I think my issues with the report being poorly written, this was one of them. So they cite McPherson, um, William McPherson, that is, who wrote the report that said the Metropolitan Police was institutionally racist following the murder um, of Stephen Lawrence. Um, And so they cite that and it says, uh, so William McPherson gave the following definition, which we believe has stood the test of time. They do note that institutional racism as a definition has evolved over time. Um, but they kind of dwell on this McPherson report for a very long time. And they say that the McPherson report's definition was the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to the people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour which amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping which disadvantage minority ethnic people. Now, this definition, wonderful. In my personal opinion, this report came out in 1999, maybe before some of you were born, maybe not. Some of you might remember it. Um, But it does note, right, and remember the title of this podcast is Institutionally Ignorant, because I do think that this report is institutionally ignorant. And I think ignorance, whilst we, it tends to be a bit of a throwaway comment, oh, you're being really ignorant or he's ignorant to these struggles. It's a very problematic state to be in, in my opinion. You know, this idea that ignorance is bliss and in many ways it is. But in today's society, um, you know, it's more important in my mind to be anti-racist than just ignorant to the struggles of others. So the McPherson report does say, you know, within institutions, if you are ignorant to the things that disadvantage minority ethnic people, um, that is institutional racism. And in my head, my definition of institutional racism is not the fact that, you know, people are being uh, mistreated on the streets or being trolled online, for example. Institutional racism is the racism in practices in institutions such as the education system such as the police such as in healthcare such as in politics for example so how can you know without looking at every single institution in the united kingdom or britain how can you say there is no institutional racism when there are clear examples of certain institutions and not all of them that are racist and have racist practices and discriminatory practices. Pimlico Academy right now, if anyone's following that story, is not allowing girls to wear hijabs, not allowing um, black girls to have certain Afro hairstyles, having their hair out, having their hair in certain braids and whatnot. So that is a discriminatory practice towards Muslim girls in the case of the hijab and black girls of Caribbean and African descent or mixed um, descent in regards to their hair 
and it's dis- it's disabling them from learning because they're not allowed to be in the classroom. So that is a clear case of institutional racism. You may not like the term commission report writers. You may think it is a broad term that is just often brushstroked across issues because that's the kind of tone that was read from this report. They had a problem with this idea that institutional racism or systemic racism was just thrown at issues like, oh, it's just systemic systemic racism. Britain's just systemically racist. And it's not the case. There are clear examples across different institutions of racism that is institutional because it's based on the practices of said institution. And I just don't understand how you cannot get that from this country. And that's not to say, as I've said, that every single person that's not non-black or, you know, non-Asian is going to be racist. It's obviously not the case. But as we've always said, and I've always said on this podcast, there are institutions in this country that are upholding racist and discriminatory practices. And that is exactly why this country is institutionally racist. Okay, so going back to my little categories that I made, I'm in the what does this even mean section, um, where I've highlighted things where I'm like, you know, what does this even mean? Like, what are you actually trying to say here? And so in this section, it's majority educational points. Um, and, you know, some of them are in some ways problematic and some of them I feel like are just kind of overlooking certain factors. Um, so, as I've said earlier, this report wants participation. One of the recommendations is that, you know, um, minority ethnic people need to participate more in society um, and we need to accept the fact that the UK has, and I'll quote, fundamentally shifted since those periods in the past and has become a more open society. Now, I won't, you know, argue against that because the racism that was seen in the 50s and 60s in some of the episodes that I've spoken about, like, this podcast alone is a catalogue of some of those instances of racism. And, you know, in the majority, they don't happen anymore. In the majority, yes, Britain is a much better place to live um, as a black person anyway um, than it was, say, 70 years ago. That is not, for me personally, something to, to write home about. It's not something to dance about. I'm sorry. I'm not going to get excited about that. This idea that Britain is, and I quote, a beacon to the rest of the world in regards to how it deals with race, and especially Europe, might be true. Um, European countries are notoriously silent about race, especially in countries like France, Belgium. They do not, you know, report on race. They do not break any statistics down on race like even with covid they didn't look at how covid was impacting black people necessarily over anybody else and so yes britain is um in some ways in a better place when it comes to discussions about race and how they're dealing with race but you know in the words of dave and i'm not gonna remember this quote word for word um but in black he says um you know just because you're the least racist um it doesn't mean you're not racist And just because this country might be the least racist, with a history of empire like theirs, I just can't get excited about that, you know? There are discussions whether the Benin bronzes are going to go back to Nigeria. Um, You know, the wealth that this country has that was pillaged and stolen from many, many countries across the world. Like, that is not something I'll ever get excited about until Britain 
really reckon with their past. And the comments about history and slavery in this report suggests that Britain has no intention of doing that. Because this idea that we should be, you know, celebrating influential people of all races in history is noted. It's said in this report, and I was like, wonderful. But, you know, in the same vein, it's saying that we need to teach history accurately. You know, we can't be rewriting history. Whenever someone says we can't be rewriting history, I think, well, you have no idea what history is all about. You have no clue what the discipline of history is and you don't know what a historian does in their life because that is all historians do. Rewrite history using new sources of information, uh, new archives, new pieces um, of technology to help them, whether that be in the field of maths, maybe using like climetrics or stats to, you know, rethink about a certain period of history. It might be using art, it might be using archaeology, um, and like things that are dug up, you know, that is how history is written and shaped. And so as we learn more about the past, as we uncover more things and as we, you know, think about race in different ways as time progresses, of course, we're going to change the way we think about history. Of course, we're going to rewrite history. Some of the things that I say on this podcast, I wouldn't dream of saying if I lived in 1960s Britain. I would I would have I wouldn't have made it. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, so this idea that on the one hand, they're saying we need to forget about the racism of the past and we need to move on from it and we need to understand that Britain is a better country. However, you're not letting that sentiment be applied to the way that we think about history and the way that we teach history, which obviously, you know, as a kind of historian working in education and wanting to do that for the rest of my life, I find that extremely difficult to reckon with and to understand how they reach that conclusion. Well, I do understand it. It's not anything new, but very problematic all the same um so they also talk about this like idea of representation um there is an exception um sorry there is an expectation um of ethnic minority voices at the top of politics across the political parties in law education medicine business media and culture that did, did not exist a generation ago and is still too rare elsewhere um that is another quote taken so this idea that you know there are more black faces in high spaces. Well, hey, great. Again, not something I personally can get excited about because in terms of politics anyway, it doesn't matter if it's a black person in power, if their political kind of ideologies do not really match mine and do not, in my view anyway, seem to be, you know, moving towards the liberation of black people or, you know, helping black people, Asian people, um, to reckon with this society that we're living in and to, to be able to better deal with it um, and, you know, there being less barriers for us here, I can't really get excited just because you're black. That's not how, how life works, really. I think my primary concern with this report was this use of data to paint this picture um, of a potentially, and I don't want to use the word lazy, but just a complaining and lazy black population, and particular black Caribbean people, um, who have been dealing with racism in this country since, as I said, the 40s and 50s. And this idea that we should forget maybe as third, fourth generation um, and children of, of this like winterish generation and, and before, we should just forget what our grandparents went through. We should just forget how they were treated. We should just forget, um, you know the way that they were treated in different institutions, in the workplace, in housing, by the police, in education, um, in healthcare. We should just forget all of that and get over it. You can't say that to people, I don't think. 
And this report is very much of that tone. You know, that happened. We're not going to acknowledge it because we're not going to teach in schools. But you just need to get over it in your own homes. You need to get over it because Britain isn't like that anymore. That is exactly how I read this report. And maybe that wasn't the intention of any of the authors, but that's how it reads. It's very much a case of Britain might have been racist at one point. You know, Britain might have had its problems. But we aren't going to educate the next generations about that. We just need you to forget it. And we need you to work harder so that, you know, this whole racism isn't a problem in the future. And that is, to me, ridiculous. They reference the 2012 Olympics. They reference Dizzy Rascal belting out his hit bonkers as Danny Boyle managed to create a vision of the UK which united all communities. He gave us an ideal of an open, optimistic UK, refreshed with new communities. On that day, the whole nation was proud to be British. I promise you they were not. I promise you a year after the riots in 2011 following the uh, murder of Mark Duggan, I promise you that the whole nation was not proud to be British. I promise. And I don't understand how that conclusion was reached. Don't get me wrong, Danny Boyle did, he did, he did great things. I really enjoyed that little mini window that was like running across the stage. Um, and I did enjoy the 2012 Olympics um, opening ceremony. However, the idea that this just kind of overshadowed decades, centuries of racism, of colonialisation, of imperialism, of pillaging, of violence towards black and brown people across the world on a global scale is absolutely ridiculous to me. Ridiculous. So, without going into, I think, any more rants, because I've realised this episode has taken a lot of me emotionally, um, I think I'm going to leave it there. I think I would urge you to read this report. Sometimes, you know, you might be thinking, oh, I don't want to read it. You know, this is just going to upset me. It's going to annoy me. Or read some articles. But be aware of what those in power think about race. Because it's obviously going to impact us. Be aware of how you can fight it by knowing the... I don't want to say the cards of the enemy. <laughs> because it's a bit too far. But, you know, this is... in direct opposition to a lot of the things I believe and I think most of the people that I speak to about this podcast and listen might agree so think about you know what this says what this means for race relations this denial of racism of, on an institutional level they obviously you know say that racism is is still existing online it's you know there are still hate crimes happening and that kind of thing um which I'm not even going to get happy about because obviously it's given um we know this we see it um but yeah this report was a lot um there are so many people that have spoken out against it i would say um maybe have a look at akala um his kind of commentary on this report and just the things he said in the past kind of support um the idea that this report is just using the data in a very specific way to fit a certain agenda and not necessarily be actually encompassing of the accurate picture in this country um, so yeah, he's someone you can look at, and just generally, there are so many people commenting on it. Historians, um, historians of empire of Britain of Black British history, um, in my kind of sphere of influence, um, there are journalists that are writing really good work about this as well. And so, you know, think about this report, and 
as we go into this month where we look at migration and we look at people coming from different communities um, from across the world and this idea that this report has said we're going to stop using BAME but we're going to use the term ethnic minorities 353 times across the report you know think about that and I hope you have a wonderful week um, because that is all from me um, that's all I can pull out of my my brain today to think about this report and what it was saying about this country so thank you so much for listening please do follow us on all our social medias and on every podcast platform that you use have a great week thank you so much bye